Are you a double E that needs PCB assembly? Look no further than Macrofab. We've got you covered. Whether you need a single prototype or high volume manufacturing, including system integration, Macrofab is your solution. Use our easy online interface to upload your files, get a quote in minutes, and order your PCB assembly without speaking to anyone. A few days later, your high quality PCBs will arrive in the mail. Visit macfab.com today and sign up and get started. Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I am your guest, Chrissy Meyer. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 180. Chrissy Meyer has spent the past decade taking hardware projects from early concept through high-volume production. After getting her MS in electrical engineering from Stanford, she led several projects at Apple and Square and was a founding team member at Pearl Automation, a vehicle technology startup. Recently, Chrissy joined Root Ventures, a seed-stage hard-tech venture capital firm. At Root, she invests in deeply technical teams that are solving problems in robotics, hardware, industrial automation, AI, and machine learning. So, Chrissy, that's quite a background. Uh, how did you get started in all that stuff? Yeah, well, first, guys, thanks thanks for having me. Um, my, my background is actually uh, a little bit crazy. I, I don't think it's the... Um, typical path for most uh, venture capitalists, most most investors and people in the VC world um, come from slightly different backgrounds than I do. But I, I you know, at Root, we invest in um, startup, com- startup companies. So I know you mentioned this, but we do a lot of like dev tools and software and robotics investments. But like most of our investments are in hardware and manufacturing. Um, and I've been like, I've been a hardware nut from the very, very beginning, like from very early on. So I, I worked on everything from like military satellites to credit card readers to, um, iPods. And that was, that was back when iPods were still cool. Like they were still very much, a an in thing. Um, do you they guys, were the, they were the own, they were their own device besides being combined with your phone. Basically. Yeah. Which, uh, which, which generation iPod was it? So... Well, did I work on or did I own? Yeah. Oh, well, work on. <laughs> okay. So I did, oh gosh, I want to say like four generations of iPod Touch and one iPod Nano and um, the very first generation Apple Watch. But the first, the first iPod that I actually owned was a um, pink iPod Mini. Was that, yeah, that was a little square one. No, 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 no. The square, the square one was the Nano. Um, this is like the big, uh, chunky one. Like if you look at it today, it's like I've still got, I've still got it in my closet. And miraculously, like the thing still, still boots up and still works. Um, you guys remember your first iPod? I got had one of them. I don't remember exactly which one it was. I remember it had a game on it where it would like play like twenty seconds of a song and give you like five choices, and you could guess what song it was. That's all I remember from my iPod. So I had an, I, the only iPod I ever owned was a Shuffle. Well, Shuffle's an awesome product. Like, I feel like that's probably, even though I never actually worked on a Shuffle, that's probably my, my all-time favorite iPod. Like, you could take that thing anywhere, and you could beat, beat the crap out of it, and it survived, like, pretty much everything. Oh, okay, so I, I actually looked up the iPod Shuffle. The second generation is what I thought was a Nano. 
Because the one I had was like the USB stick style. Oh, yeah. That's way back. It looks like a back. gun pack. That's way back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like, let me, I'll, I'll rewind back. So like the, the story of like how I got into um, hardware and how I got into engineering, like it's going to sound a little bit crazy, but um, I was nine years old when I decided I wanted to become an electrical engineer. Um, so my, uh, my dad's old college buddies gave me one of those, um, radio shack, build your own radio kits for Christmas. You guys nice. know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah. Right? Oh yeah. With little springs and yeah. you know, the 115 one kind of thing. Yeah. 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 I mean, I like where you follow just like the instruction book and you just like connect from spring A to spring B and spring B to spring C. Um, and like when you're done, you've got this like barely functioning radio, like super, super staticky. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I loved I loved that thing. Like I literally spent hours locked in my basement, like playing with it. So I, I, I like my nine year old self walked away thinking that that is what engineers do all day, like day in and day out. <laughs> Push components into springs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's pretty much all there is to it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, do you still have that set? Oh my gosh, I don't. Like, I, I feel like my mom got rid of it when I was in high school, and I'll never forgive her for that. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine by now, like, just like the cardboard just all falling apart and <laughs> rusted springs. and. Yeah, I, I bet it would still work. I bet it would still work today. <laughs> fast, fast forward a few years. So I did, I did study double E in school, um, and I had, like... I had a pretty fun run of um, internships while I was in school. So, like, my first one was actually working on a um, steel pickling line. Have you guys heard of steel pickling? I don't think so. I don't, I mean, I can't imagine putting I-beams in a jar and then putting them on sandwiches. <laughs> it's kind of close. Kind of. Like, almost. Almost. No, it's, it's, um, it's like a process for, you take, like, raw rolls of steel and like run it through super concentrated hydrochloric acid baths mm -hmm. um and it just like cleans off rust and debris so it's it's actually some pretty nasty stuff like that those acid baths are not not nice okay but um but i mean i was a freshman in college so i was like thrilled to have any job and they they hired me to build user interfaces for their, their Siemens PLCs that ran the pickling line. Um, but at least, I mean, that's what they told me, but I think, I think the reality of the situation is that they hired me because I was like the only person that they could find that was small enough to like climb under the equipment and repair it when <laughs> things broke down. That's how it always is. Um, that's, I, I did radio stuff up in Oklahoma and like, they picked me probably because I was the youngest person to climb the towers. <laughs> <laughs> when I when I interned for the power company and they opened up one of the uh, large power transformers, they sent me down inside the transformer. They didn't actually have me do anything. They just sent me down in there and then they're, and they're like, how is it? I'm like, oh, thanks. I'm covered in oil and it's like 120 degrees inside this thing. <laughs> they just close the lid. Yeah, yeah. A little bit of hazing of the intern, I suppose. But I bet you learned so much about transformers, right? <laughs> They're hot and oily. That's what I learned. <laughs> and then you never want to do that again. No, no. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I loved it. I really did. It's like I would come home, like, covered in oil and grease. But, like, 
it was it was probably my first exposure to um, like real world manufacturing, like you know how things actually get made and processed. So, like that was kind of like my first step into manufacturing, and I like I never wanted to turn back after that. Just out of curiosity, what what about it uh, really stuck with you? Like building things physical and seeing things um, seeing things like happen in the physical world is just, um, I don't know, there's something really magical and there's something really, uh, really, really special about it. Um, and I actually, like, the next summer, I, I, I guess I moved up in the world. I got a, uh, a desk job building, like, MATLAB and Simulink models for massive uh, diesel engines. Okay. Uh, and, like, I hated it. Like... I hated it. Like simulating models was not my idea of fun. Um, but that, like, the highlight from that summer was the week that I actually got to spend working as an operator on the um, engine assembly line. So they, oh, that's cool. Yeah, they opened it up to like any intern who wanted to take a stab at it could just like go spend a week working on the line. And and I mean, they obviously like they put us on the stupidly simple stations, like the ones that were like pretty much impossible to like mess up in any way but I mean again like I just I, like, I thought it was the most amazing thing ever like being able to see real physical products come together and like being part of it was so much better than uh sitting at a desk building simulating models yeah I, I would say um you would have rather been like testing the machines and that kind of stuff instead of simulating them yeah it I, I think it's I think being on like um, being on the manufacturing side and, and, and the testing side is, is like, and being able to see things come together, it, it really takes like, it takes things to a whole nother level. And like, if you're isolated and just sitting down and focusing on design, um, and I, I don't know, like it design without manufacturing is, is nothing, right? Like, what's the point? <laughs> it's software, right? <laughs> I was about to say it's architecture. So, so, software, you mean, uh, just typing? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to be that mean, but architecture is very similar to that. So, so you, but you have uh, worked on a handful of design projects, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so my, my first like real job out of school has, was like um, writing test scripts for military satellites. Um, so like I was just, like I was a lab rat. I sat in a lab just like day in and day out and wrote Pearl scripts that would run on these like giant test racks full of like top of the line Xilinx FPGAs. Like it sounded cool, but honestly, like it got pretty, pretty boring after a while. Like I learned pretty quickly that like government work can be slow at times. So who picked Pearl? <laughs> was, was that something that you picked or was it someone? It was all the rage at the time. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to think. Like, this was like really before Python started taking off, and it was it was pretty uh pretty fun to like try to see if I could write like the entire script in like one one single line. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, would it, would it be done in Python now? Uh, I I would assume so. I don't know. I don't know what they are what they would be using. Um. I don't know what they'd be using now, but it's like the, the thing that killed me is like after I got bored with writing Pearl scripts, I, I uh, moved to California. I went back to school and um, 
right after I went back to school, I found out that my satellite project had been canceled. <laughs> like, com- oh, no. completely <laughs> scrapped. So that was like one and a half years of my life, like effectively down the drain. Were there any signs on the wall about that? Not when I was there. Not when I was there. I like. I think that there were some uh, significant like Congress budget cuts right after I left. But ah. um, yeah, it's unfortunate how that works out. So what kind of what kind of tests do you run on satellites? Like <laughs> top secret. Like uh, yeah, I guess so. No, I mean, the the idea was like to stress the hardware as much as we possibly could. And and I think that that's like, it was basic validation to make sure that like the designs were working like as, as expected and and things were meeting spec. And then also just like running as many stress tests as you could. Right. The, the, The old rule that if there's a spec written, then there's a test to test that. Yeah, pretty, pretty much, pretty much. Well, uh, so then, so you went back to school, and uh, what did you focus on for your master's? Yeah, so I um, actually worked on wireless sensor networks. Um, so I like took these little moats and connected them up in like a, a, a network around my around my dorm room, around my apartment, and then worked on uh, different protocols to to try to make like try to increase increase throughput and reduce latency. Which was fun, which was, which was fun. I mean, I loved, I loved the stuff I was doing on the wireless side. Um, but it's, it's also really funny that like around that time, um, I got an internship at Apple and this was like, this was about the same time the iPhone came out. Um, so I interned for the iPod team and like, pretty it was pretty clear from like day one what I was going to be doing was like nothing related to what I was working on at Stanford like no wireless nothing related to like protocols for like wireless mesh networks you know (laughs) well okay so so what did they have you working on so uh so when I joined it was actually a um it was an iPod newt tech team so we were looking at a bunch of new technologies um, things that were probably a little far out that they weren't going to be like built into products anytime soon, but things that like, if they worked out, um, it would be like, it it would be incredible. And, and I think at the time, like iPhone was really starting to take off. So iPod was kind of seen as like iPhone's little brother. And as a result, because like volumes were lower, it was the testing ground for a lot of new technologies. So like before something got booked into iPhone, we would try it out on an iPod program where volumes were a little bit lower and you could handhold the suppliers a little bit more closely. Um, so I, I, I did that for a summer. And we also did like, we also did a lot of like competitive teardowns. Like I remember taking apart a Zune um, back when Zunes were a thing. <laughs> Are they still around? I just, I'm now I'm, I've, on, on f- Unfortunately, they're not. I actually liked. I had a Zoom. Oh so. no way! Did you really? Yeah, I actually liked it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'll try not to hold that against you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so on doing the teardowns, I, I I would imagine that you got a lot of insight into like manufacturing and that kind of stuff. Yeah, it was. Um, it was fun, like trying to figure out why things were designed the way that they were. And like, 
you know, you come to realize that, that so many of the decisions that people make when like laying out a board or like architecting a product or doing mechanical design, like it's, it's purely for manufacturability, right? Like so many decisions are made along the way to make things easily manufacturable and like consistently manufacturable at really, really high volumes. Which that's something I'd, I'd really like to get into because you have plenty of experience with large scale manufacturing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that would be really awesome to kind of go down that route and sort of crack that egg on what does it take to make a million or 10 million things? Yeah. I like, this is something that I, I, uh, love to geek out about. It's just, um, I, th I think that there aren't too many places that you can go in the world where you get, you know, a boot camp or a crash course on like real design for scale and like design for like high volume manufacturing. And I think that like a lot of people just don't realize that the way that you, the way that you approach design is, is totally different, like totally, totally different if you're going to build 10 of something or a thousand of something or like 10 million of something. Um, and, and, and I don't just mean like the decision to like 3d print something versus machine something versus injection mold something like that. I mean, that's important too, but like, I mean, down to the way you lay out your PCB and like the types of issues that you care about and the issues that you don't care about. I mean, the biggest shift in thought process is like when you're building 10 million of something, you actually really care about the 0.1% failure modes, like really care. Um, and I'm not, I'm not trying to shit all over Samsung, but like if your battery blows up 0.1% of the time, like that is n definitely not okay. Well, yeah, it's like 10,000 plus people right. that now have their pants on fire. <laughs> <laughs> or worse. <laughs> or worse. Yeah. Right. And it only takes one to get in the news, right? Yeah. Yeah. And like the other, so the other crazy thing is like when you're shipping 10 million of something, it's, it's not super uncommon to hit silicon bugs that like nobody has ever seen before. And they make an errata data sheet just for you. <laughs> well, you're, you're always like, wait, wait, like this isn't listed anywhere in the errata. Well, like, no, it's not because the chip maker doesn't know about it. Like those are not fun problems uh right you're hitting their 0.1 percent exactly right? <laughs> yeah exactly which i which and those those types of things are really hard to reproduce like i've literally had times where i spent the night um overnight in the office staying awake sitting up next to racks of like hundreds and hundreds of devices that were running stress tests just trying to catch one silicon bug um, and we had like, we had everyone on the team taking shifts, staying awake through the night, because if a device hit the bug, like you'd have to grab the logs off before they were overwritten and you'd have to like stop the test to try to preserve it in that, that state, like before the whole, the whole device rebooted. Um, so yeah, it's like you hit these, these really tiny problems. Um, and, and it's just like that, that silicon suppliers are not are not even aware of um anyway i'm going off on a tangent here but like when you manufacture in like high volume you should expect to run into like issues that no one has ever ever seen before so where if you if you're a 
hardware design team designing their first couple products, when do you start thinking about this kind of scale? Like, when do they need to start going, okay, I need to start designing for this high volume kind of stuff? Oh, as early. Day one, right? <laughs> as early as possible. As early, early as possible. So it's like, you've got to keep it in mind, like, while you're actually architecting the product. Like, when you're selecting your components. Like, when you're figuring out how you're going to, like, piece everything together. Um, but then there's also, like, you know, you t- people talk about design for manufacturing. Like, you can also... You can also go a little too crazy and you can do you can do a little bit too much of it too soon. Like I think there's there's a balancing act there. People like to say, "Oh, like there's no such thing as doing design for manufacturing too early. Like, you know, start DFM right away." But the reality of the situation is like DFM is often a process that that you can't do like alone in a vacuum like you're having to go back and forth and back and forth with suppliers and you're having to like figure out what their technical capabilities are and um what they can do so it's like if your design is changing in like a big way and it's it's like doing so frequently then you don't want to waste everybody's time right like you don't you don't want to waste the time of like you know your entire supply chain and, and get them upset and angry at you before you even get started on the project. So, so actually uh, with the design for manufacturing, when does the manufacturer actually come into that? Do they, are they part of the design for manufacturing from the get go or do you kind of do the first couple of rounds and then present to them what you have? Yeah. Usually, usually like you want them involved from, from step one, like the moment you start DFM, like the first thing you should do is, is talk to the manufacturer. And that's, that's both like the manufacturer who's going to be SMTing your boards or like assembling your final product, but also like all up and down the supply chain too. Like whoever's injection molding your parts, like you want to be talking to them as well, or whoever's like die casting your frame. Like it's important to like involve them, um, from the first from the first step in the process, because ultimately like, you know, you can design whatever you want, but they know their capabilities. They know their, their equipment. They know what they can do like far better than, than you ever will. So you have to lean on them early to be able to tell you like what's okay to do and and what's not okay to do. They will, they will also know their 0.1% failure modes and assembly and stuff and help you work around those. Right. And like, I hate, like, I hate to admit this, but like, there's been like way too often (laughs) that I've gotten like DFM feedback from like, you know, a a flex supplier or somebody that like suggests like 20 changes. And and I like look at it and I like roll my eyes and I'm just like, ah, like we're on a schedule. Like we don't have time to like make all these changes. Just like, it'll be fine. Fab it. Just go ahead. Fab it. It'll be fine. And then like, sure enough, like it all blows up in my face and I'm like, Oh, I really <laughs> wish I would have listened to that. <laughs> oh yeah. I've, I've certainly experienced that before where there's a customer who they're ready to go. They provide all the files to you and they're like, okay, we've got a, you know, our a money burning a, a hole in our pocket and all of our design files are here. We just give it to you and you make it happen. And I look at them like, none of this is ready. None of this is is even slightly ready. And then they're like, well, just push forward. And I'm like, okay, hold on. This is going to be fun. It's your money, right? (laughs) Like, your money that we're wasting. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah. So how do you deal with that? Like, how do you talk? How do you like convince customers that no, really, you should go back, back and make these changes your de- to your design? Well, you know, I, with with anything, I think there's there's, um, I think you have to weigh the options, pick your battles. Uh, maybe you know that list of twenty things. I guarantee you, not all twenty of those things were hundred percent critical. Maybe three of them were. Go and rank them and say, like, look, we have to do these three. We would really like the other seventeen, but we'll be happy if you give us these three. You know, work it, work it out that way, and 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 build your case and explain it well to the customer and explain why it needs to be that way and what they can exp- uh, expect if they don't do that. Yeah. Do you ever make the changes for them? Uh, I try very hard not to ever modify a customer's file unless they have given me explicit ability to do that. Um, you know, unless it's something very minor, like moving silkscreen on a PCB or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've found that when we come to customers with, with issues like that, um, they are happy and like, they usually always take our advice. Um, it's very rare that they say, you know, don't care, throw, throw the money on the fire. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> that is very rare. Yeah. Well, and, and, and everyone's under the gun, right? There is no such thing as like just an open, loose timeline. Like, yeah. Everyone's always like under the gun. Yeah. Yeah. Of but course, like the yeah. thing that people, that people have to realize is that if you don't fix it up front, like it's only going to get harder to fix like the further along in product development you go. Right. Oh, always. And it's just like, so point, point 0.1% problems matter when you're shipping tens of millions of things. So like, even, even if it's one of those like lower priority manufacturing issues that that's flagged by the like factory, you, you really have to go through those with a fine tooth comb and you really have to like make sure that you're addressing their concerns and, and you have to trust them, right? Like you have to trust them that they understand their process because if it turns into a 0.1% failure, like, like it's, it's not okay. And like, heaven forbid, like it, you know, returns and recalls of products are like really expensive. Like, really, really expensive. Um, I feel like, I feel like, you know, expensive from a monetary perspective of like replacing a customer's unit and processing an RMA is, is like, is expensive in the moment. But like when you're a company like Apple or Google or, or Amazon, like failures in the field are, um, are expensive from like the perspective of like public perception and PR. Um, because all it takes is like one person's blog post to go viral about some issue they found with their phone and like your stock price can drop instantly. Like you can quickly wipe 10 billion off your company's market cap. So so like an issue that causes a product to fail like 0.1% of the time, like really isn't, really isn't acceptable. And like even more importantly, if it's like a latent failure, like meaning it's not caught before it leaves the factory, like that's really not okay. Yeah, RMAs and stuff like that always remind me of the airbag that was it Takati? Oh yeah, Takata, Takata. I think uh, airbag issue with all the RMAs. Um, well, not RMAs, recalls. It's like, I mean, you gotta think of every single vehicle that has one of these airbags in it. You're paying a mechanic three hundred to four hundred dollars to swap it out. That doesn't include the parts. That's like you're talking millions, like 
I think it was something like like 20 or 40 million vehicles were affected. And they're still repairing vehicles today. It's like a decade later or something like that. Yeah, that's insane. Like, that's the last thing you want to happen, right? And like, I mean, sometimes, I mean, product development's tricky. Like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to make it sound like they did, they, they, you know, knowingly did a million things wrong. But at the same time, like, you've got to be super diligent, like as early in the process as you can. And you've got to test the, test the heck out of everything to, to try to avoid problems like that. Well, okay, so so what kind of checks and balances do you put in place to prevent these kinds of things? Yeah, I mean, it's so I I think that like you know, you can test on the line as much as you want. Like you can test um like you can do like functional testing on the line. You can you know, you can um do like, uh, oh man, I'm forgetting like the name for it, but it's like effectively like tested as a customer would at the end of the line. But like really what it comes down to is, is like even more importantly than that. And even more importantly than like bench top validation, like electrical validation, like on the bench, like you've really got to beat these products up, like really got to beat these products up. Um, like you've got to drop it from like a meter onto granite over and over again until it breaks. And like, you've got to send it to like the highest, you know, reasonable temperature and the lowest reasonable temperature and like do that like hundreds of times. Like I, I, I think that like my all time favorite is um, playing with the ESD gun. <laughs> That's about to actually mention ESD. Oh yeah. Uh, unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like that's my favorite. Like that, that is fun. But like the idea is that you don't just like zap it to see if you like pass a spec. You test it to failure. Like yeah, you abuse it. Yeah, you keep testing and you keep testing and like you keep increasing the voltage or like you keep increasing the temperature or the number of like times you're dropping it onto granite or whatever it is until it fails, and then you figure out what your weakest link is. And then like make it better next time, like make it better for the next iteration. It's like the, I I feel like the secret to shipping in like really high volume really lies in the amount of testing that you do to make sure that your product is going to survive and that it's going to be robust. And like the more you can like front load that testing, like early in the development schedule, like the better off you'll, you'll be. So we, I got a funny story about that is, um, because I, I work with a couple um, badge, like conference badge makers. And one of the groups, they test by giving it to their kids because it's it's they think it's, it's, it's a very good analog to giving it to a bunch of really drunk people at a conference. <laughs> and so if it can survive the kids, it can survive the conference. <laughs> pretty That's solid awesome. testing. Yeah. So it's, it seems to work pretty well. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm going to start doing that with every every product I touch from here on out. <laughs> How about uh, designing for assembly when we're talking about very high manufacturing? Um, so is there a difference between manufa- DFM than what would that be DFA? Yeah, I mean, typically DFM refers to like the parts, like the individual components. So like, you know, DF I'll I'll do DFM on my like injection molded piece of plastic or like my stamp metal part or whatever, whatever it may be. But like DFA refers to um, like putting all the pieces together and, and making sure that they work, work well together. 
Um, but it's, it's, it's weird. The terminology is weird. Like I've always used DFM for effectively all of that. Yeah, that's what I would say. I, I would be like DFA, DFM is all of that because at the end, you're still manufacturing the entire thing. Yeah. Well, well, okay. So the, the distinction I might put on that is DFM might be something that your engineering team in-house, they do to the design that they created. And DFA might be something where you rope in your manufacturer and you're discussing it together, how it's actually accomplished. Yeah, I don't know. I've always t thought about like DFM, even even DFM I've thought about as like you're working with the supplier directly. But it, it's not like your final, it's not whoever's doing your final assembly. It's like you're working directly with the injection molding house or, you know, the die cast vendor or whatever. Um, so it's not like a purely internal thing. But I also like the, the weird piece of this is that like when you talk about PCBs, right? Like people talk about People say DFM, right? Like, it's it's really an assembly. Like, you're placing things on a circuit board, but people still call it DFM and not DFA. So we should just flip them. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But but the thing is, like, when it comes down to, uh, you know, your, your team of engineers make a decision to put, I don't know, an extra screw uh, on something for, for 100 units, okay, that's something. But for 10 million units, that's a lot of extra work uh, for whoever's doing the manufacturing, and that has a lot of implications on things. Um, if, if the decision comes about that you were adding an extra uh, fastener or whatever, how does that get relayed to the manufacturer or the assembler? And what kind of, how do they going to rope back and say, we like this or we don't? Yeah, like that's, that's a really tough part. And like the truth is it varies like from organization to organization. Like I, I wish that there was like one set way that it, that it worked for like most, you know, contract manufacturers. But like, you know, the, the reality of the situation is like, you know, when you're dealing with high volume and when you're dealing with like top tier manufacturers, like, you've got to know when to put your pencils down, like when you should not add that screw or when you should not add that fastener. And like, you really need to like stop making design changes and it becomes really sensitive, like really, really sensitive. So like it, I always found that it works really well to have like one point person, whether that's a project manager or a systems engineer, or like I, you know, an, an, an engineering manager or like, some factory lead, I don't care what you call it, but like one point person that is like ultimately the decision maker on at any given time, like whether or not a change gets in. And if so, how it gets communicated, um, how it gets communicated to like the factory, because like, keep in mind that these like top tier CMs, they're, they're, um, they're like optimized for continuous production. Like, once you get production started, they run, like, a well-oiled machine. But, like, you know, getting to that continuous production state can be really, really hard. And, like, one mistake that I see a lot of startups make, and, like, especially now that, like, I'm on the investing side, like, at Root, we, we have a lot, of, a lot of hardware startups in our portfolio. And, like, one mistake that I see people make is that they're moving as fast as they can. So instead of going, like, pencils down on a design like you're still making pretty major design changes you're adding screws and fasteners like as you enter mass production 
And I mean, I, I'm sure you guys have seen it. Like, I'm sure you guys have lots of war stories. For sure. <laughs> get uh, when you get a new sets of Gerbers or component lists, and you're like, uh, it's already halfway through production, guys. Yeah. <laughs> what are we? What are we doing here? <laughs> yeah. So, so wait, uh, did, did did Apple have like a single point man for entire like the i whatever iPod number? Yeah, like there's a single point man on that. Yeah, and that's what that's what engineering project managers were, um, and and that's why like I mean I was an EPM and engineering project manager at Apple and, um, and I loved it. Like it, it's it's fun and still technical, but at the same time, like you are the person that is like in charge of all communications with the factory and all decisions related to the factory up until production. And then once you get into production, there's this shift and then this, the operations team moves in and they, uh, they take over and it's their responsibility from there on out because, you know, as, as an engineering team, you like move off to go work on, on new, uh, new projects. But um, yeah, like it was pretty clear, especially in like the early iPod days, like there was one point person and if you wanted anything done, a design change made, like something hap- like something to be done, an experiment run or, or something happening in the factory. Like it was, it was one point of communication, um, which was great, but it also meant like as a PM, I was on the phone at like three in the morning, <laughs> like yeah, more, times, more times stressful. than I can count. Right. I wouldn't imagine you would have much time to do any design yourself. You're basically putting out everyone else's fires. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, all the time, both uh, metaphorical fires and uh, occasionally a, a, a literal fire. <laughs> Though, but no, it, I mean, it was, it, that's, that's exactly how it worked. And it was firefighting. Like it wasn't a design role. Like I, I was not sitting down and doing like iPod schematics. And part of me missed that. Like all of my education was like super, super technical. So like part of me missed that. But at the same time, like the thing that I really liked about the role was that like I could be building a product development budget one minute and then like negotiating with a supplier the next minute. And then like in the lab, taking scope shots, trying to like debug some like crazy issue that we found like the next minute, you know, it was like never a dull moment. And like you bounced from thing to thing to thing and you you got exposure to so many different areas. And like, I, I really wouldn't trade that for the world. So I, I got a question for you that's Apple related. Um, but, but, kind of um, a little bit off the uh, I actually have a customer that has asked for Apple's level of quality for their surface finish on like MacBooks and and things like they they like that that bead blasted process pretty and, uh, uh, pretty expensive <laughs> yeah yeah well and that's what I that's what I told them I was like you want that level of quality in the uh, you know hundred to two hundred piece range, <laughs> like this is, I, I'm a, I'm amazed that Apple is is capable of doing that in the million range, you know. Yeah, but the the thing that you have to like remember is that when you're working for, and this is like any big company that was, this is like not just Apple, but like any big company with deep pockets, like they can afford to start production with fifty percent yields on something, right? Sure. Yeah. Like they can they can they can afford to like throw away, you know, 
two in every 10 iPhones built. Like it's, it's, it's not ideal, but like they can sustain that for a while because they have like an infinite pile of cash that they can, that they can tap into. And like, if you're a small startup or you're a smaller, smaller mid-sized customer, like, like, I'm sorry, you, you can't afford to do that. Like you can't have Apple, Apple level, uh, cosmetic finish on your, on your parts because it's, it's prohibitively expensive. Um, and you don't have leverage, like you don't have leverage with your supply chain to even push for that. Like you're, you, you have to go in under the assumption that like you're nobody to them. Right. <laughs> like, sure. Sure. Beg, yeah. beg for, uh, for, you know, for somebody to even like crank out parts for your product. For sure. And, and, and I wouldn't, I mean, you can probably speak to this, but I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, Apple had massive quality documents, right? For, oh yeah. Well, I mean, they have how things are supposed to look. Oh yeah. And, and they have, they have armies, like armies of, uh, quality engineers that are like, that live full time in Asia. And like they they have, you know, very specialized quality engineers too. So like, you know, there's, there's, you know, dozens of quality engineers that just focus on batteries or just focus on displays or just focus on silicon or connectors or, you know, speakers or whatever it may be. So like there's super specialized quality engineers and, and, you know, hundreds of them, um, for each particular part and component. So, so those people live on site at the suppliers, like they're there day in and day out, but like no startup has that level of resources. <laughs> like no startup can 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 go can go make that happen as much as they'd like to. So speaking of quality control, testing and validation, I guess it depends on your product, but at high volume, do you do you still do every unit or do you do batch? Or do you just kind of spot check it or combination? Yeah, all of the above. Like all of the above. Like when you're talking about um incoming quality control there's some like pretty clear um sampling guidelines so like aql levels and like you know tell you if a batch is like so big you should inspect you know x number of parts um and this many you know failures are allowable but um when you're talking about like outgoing quality it's like there there's of course there's always going to be like things that are tested hundred percent of the time on every single unit that goes down the line, because you, you need to verify, verify that the functionality is there, that it works, that like all your signals are connected. You don't have any cold solder joints. Like, you know, you've got a, your, your connectors are seated. Like there's, there's tests that you have to run to exercise like every single piece of uh, the system, like every single subsystem. But then there's also going to be like much, uh, much more in-depth quality testing that happens at a sampling level that you pull X number of units at random off every, every everything line and, and you go through a huge test plan and like, you know, exercise, exercise things a lot in a lot more depth. Treat it like a customer, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I assume you guys do a lot of, you know, follow a similar process. Yeah, it always surprises me, like, the difference between electronic manufacturing and uh, I always dig into automotive stuff because I'm a big gearhead. But hearing, because I talked to a lot of um, mechanics and and um, dealerships where they will get vehicles that are, they have, like, 50 problems with them. 
like switches and stuff that's like you would think because you know in electronics world you test that kind of stuff yeah i mean the factories automotive factories just don't test that kind of stuff that's crazy to me and i think they just assume if it's together it's good <laughs> yeah that's scary that's that's terrifying it might be that manufacturers the automotive world treat dealerships as like the final qc but that's still like man it just feels weird. Well, it could also be the opposite too. It could be that they're like pushing as much of the QC, like, you know, upstream to their supply chain as well. So that they're, they're like relying on, you know, whatever subsystem supplier to, to do, you know, a, a thorough level of testing so that they don't have to <laughs> repeat yeah, it all I, I on mean, the final assembly it, level. You would think that, but there was a really popular post online a couple weeks ago where like, a truck showed up at a dealership and it was a white truck and it had a red door. And just like, oh man, how, how does that get through quality control at a factory? Yeah. <laughs> not my, have, not have my you, job. Have you read all of the, the <laughs> Tesla stories? Like people are, <laughs> I've, I've seen quite a few horror stories and, and even some of my friends that, that, you know, ended up buying model threes of like been horrified at, at some of the quality issues that their, their cars shipped with. Yeah. I think that's, it's the same thing, except the problem with Tesla is they don't have dealers to do their final QC for them. Yeah. <laughs> well, the other problem with, with Tesla is that they're like manufacturing final assembly line is like a tent in their parking lot. Right. Oh yeah. I completely forgot about that. Are they still doing that? I hope not. Yeah, I hope not either. <laughs> All right, so um, quick question about getting involved with a tier one. Uh, th this comes from just the idea of like, if you don't know a tier one manufacturer, how do you even reach out and like begin that conversation? That's a good question. Um, so all of the big tier ones these days have um, have dedicated like business units or dedicated divisions that are um, working that are like dedicated to working with startups and small, smaller companies. So those are often a really, really good starting point. Um, I mean, even, even like Foxconn has one. Um, but I like the thing that I would caution people um, like the, I, I really think that, that like, the most important thing to know about working with top tier factories is that you probably shouldn't be working with top tier factories. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm, I'm really, I like, I'm joking, not joking. Like I really, I really do think that like hardware nerds like myself tend to get like overexcited by name recognition. Like you say, like Foxconn or Quanta and people just fall over themselves. <laughs> it's like a, like a celebrity crush, you know? <laughs> for, for electrical engineers. Yeah. It, it is. It, <laughs> it seriously is. But like 99.9% .9 of the time, like it's not a good idea to work with these factories. Like it very, very rarely is um, is a good fit. Like I've, I've got to be careful what I say. I, I, I have uh, close friends at all of the big top tier contract manufacturers. So I, I really hope they don't listen to your podcast. But um <laughs> Getting myself in trouble. So why why aren't they a great fit for your new widget? Yeah. Well, I mean, don't get me wrong. So like there are really great things about 
working with the Foxcons of the world. Like, they have amazing process control. Like, I guess they, I mean, they pretty much have to. Um, And they, like, you also get, like, full access to their supply chain. So, like, as a small company, like, you don't have the ability to work with, like, best-in-class injection moldings houses. But, like, if, if Foxconn is doing your final assembly, they will handle that relationship. Like, you can get best-in-class suppliers for, like, pretty much any part. Um, and, like, whatever you dream of, they have it. Um, or they can build it. Or they can, or they can build it. <laughs> and it's always, it always amazes me that, like, you need, like, a thousand new human operators overnight and they're just like okay no big deal (laughs) they make those too right (laughs) (laughs) full vertical integration (laughs) yeah but but like the 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 reason that i caution people against it is because it's it's really risky like you have to realize that if you if you're not Apple, like if you're if you're working with somebody like Foxconn and you're not Apple, you have to assume that you are that you're literally nothing to them. Like they will drop you so fast, it will make your head spin. And and like I've seen it happen to so many hardware startups, like poor poor startups and like scrambling to find a new factory partner like right before you enter pr- production is is pretty much the worst thing that you can have happen to you so like getting the a team at a smaller factory is oftentimes like way better than getting the c team at a top tier cm like you you definitely lose access to some of the resources they have but like you get real support like real um real support through like all of the ups and downs of product development so I'm leaving you guys an opening here. This is where you're supposed to like insert shameless plug for Macrofab. <laughs> actually, actually, one thing we don't do on this podcast is the shameless plugs for Macrofab. <laughs> well, okay, so so, so I, thank I, you, I, Chrissy. Yeah, well, appreciate it. <laughs> I, I've heard something before, and I want to get your opinion on this. Um, I've heard that you don't want to be well. Obviously, you don't want to be low on the list for your contract manufacturer because they can just drop you it for whatever reason. Uh, the the kind of rule of thumb that I've heard is you want to be number two or number three on their list, and you want the other people around that list to be about your size. So in other words, you still want it where they pay attention to you if you ask for something, but if number one leaves, they don't tank. They don't go out of business. <laughs> the whole the whole uh, company, the, the, your CM doesn't tank. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's spot on accurate. Like I, I definitely I definitely agree with that. Like the one thing I would add to it though is like make sure that there is like especially if you're working with like one of one of the, the bigger names, like make sure there's some strategic alignment. So like what I mean by this is like they have to have a reason to want to work with you and the reason should not be um like they believe that I'm going to sell a bajillion products and they're going to make a ton of money off of me. Like that is, that shouldn't be their reasoning. That shouldn't be their reasoning. Like that's unlikely the case. And like, they know it. So, so there's gotta be some other reason they want to work with you. Like an example of it would be like, maybe you are the first time they're building a product that's going to be used underwater. And if they like knock your project out of the park, it will help them land other customers and like potentially bigger customers who are also making underwater products. Like 
that that's what I call like strategic alignment. And I think it's like really important regardless of who your contract manufacturer is. Mm-hmm. So one, one thing on the MacFab thing is because how MacFab works with the, our, our partner network is we don't have that typical, like getting fired by your CM problem. Which is amazing. I like, it's always been like, it's always one of those things that like you are constantly on edge through like a whole product development cycle of like, you definitely want to push your factory. Like you want, you want to build a great product and you want to build it as fast as you possibly can. And, and you're, you're kind of like pushing them to the extremes, but you don't want to push too hard because you know that if you push too hard, like they've got other customers and like they could just walk away and, and like, it's a very real risk. So like having not having that, risk is uh yeah is like pretty valuable have you uh have you ever been dumped by a cm (laughs) (laughs) i okay so i have never been dumped by a cm but i have come close so many times like i like i've actually i've had them dump me and then like this was when I was consulting, but like I've had them like dump me and, and the team I was working with. And then like two days later, like change their minds. So you were on, you were like number four or five customer for them. No, no, no. I think we were at the bottom of the list. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like, that's, that's an emotional roller coaster. Like, let me tell you, like I spent the, those, like the, like 48 hours between, uh, between when they dumped us and when they decided to like take us back. Uh, I spent like most of those 48 hours, like calling every single person up their management chain and like spending time on the phone with like the president of the company trying to like convince them like why we're a valuable partner and why, why we're strategically aligned. You know, it's like one of those like crazy emotional roller coasters that you're like literally awake all night on the phone trying to convince the president of a company to take you back. Sounds awful. (laughs) It's just, just like, just like high school dating, you know. It's, it's funny to think about that way because, like, if you go to the grocery store, you're going to be able to buy groceries, and the cashier's like, no, you're not going to be able to buy groceries here. (laughs) Also, also, if you're if you're dating in high school, you you kind of want to be number one on the list. You don't want to be bottom (laughs) of the list, right? I suppose. <laughs> so, uh, so in the in the notes, you had written that you um, ha- wanted us to ask you about uh, some pet peeves of manufacturing. Uh, you want to go ahead and share some with us? <laughs> like, oh, there, there are definitely um, there's some things about manufacturing that I love to hate, and like you probably shouldn't have asked me this because you're going to get me started on on ranting and I don't know if you're going to be able to get me to stop. Oh, this is oh, great. That's perfect. Please go ahead. You sure? Oh yeah. So so first thing on the like top top few things that I hate about manufacturing is um is glue. Like glue is the bane of my existence. Yet somehow like every freaking product I've ever worked on has used glue at some point along the assembly line. Like, have now, you guys, I ever- want to guess, is it cause it's unpredictable? <laughs> well, it's unpredictable. And like you spend hours, you spend hours getting materials kitted and like people operators brought over to the line and like test stations up and running. And like, finally everything is like ready to go. 
And then the damn glue machine gets clogged, like, again, for, like, <laughs> like the 10th time in two days. So you have to sit there and, like, wait for another hour for them to disassemble the whole thing and, like, find a new nozzle. And then for some reason, like, that nozzle is, like, only stored in a warehouse that's a mile down the road. And the one person who has the key to that warehouse is on his afternoon smoke break. Like, this is this is oddly really specific here. <laughs> I mean, this has happened to me so many times. Like, it's crazy. Like, I can't even count. So, so like when it comes to glue, I just I don't care how you dispense it. Like, I don't care if it's by hand. I don't care if it's like automated dispense on some fancy X Y table. And I don't care if it's straight up Loctite 495 or some like super fancy two-part epoxy. Glue always, always turns into a disaster. And I feel like I have spent more time in factories waiting on glue than anything else. <laughs> I, I just don't like it from a like disassembly uh, aspect either. Like if you need a like especially because you know i you know i've never built a, a million of things but you know a couple thousand it's like oh i need to repair some of these things oh it's glued together <laughs> never mind <laughs> never mind yeah or you see the those uh your, the customers work instructions come over and they say apply super glue to an area it's just like oh god this is gonna be awful <laughs> especially when it's right next to a screen <laughs> oh like, yeah well yeah. that's gonna you're gonna have a your point one percent failure is going to be someone's going to put a thumbprint on that screen with glue. Oh gosh! <laughs> and I feel like, um, like by extension, I also hate underfill. Like, have you guys ever made any PCBs with underfill? Uh, I've not. No. No, I actually do not know what underfill is. Oh, so underfill is this um, black, goopy substance that you deposit around the edges of ICs. So it, it basically protects ICs and helps prevent balls from cracking or chips from popping off the board in the event that the product gets dropped or sees some sort of hard impact or vibration. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I've seen this stuff before on PCBs. I've disassembled. Yeah, but the way that it works is that you, you, you have to run the boards down an SMT line just like you normally would. And when they're done, you apply underfill around the outside edges of a chip. So you rely on capillary action for the whole thing to work. Like the underfill is supposed to wick under the chip and fill up all the empty spaces between balls. So it's great in theory. In theory, it sounds fantastic. But um, in practice, it can be a nightmare. Because if you, if you apply it inconsistently, it's worse than having no underfill at all. Any voids or any air pockets in underfill can be very bad and you can't tell that they exist just from looking at the chip um there, there's no way of telling like what the underfill looks like underneath the chip so there's no there's no fast or easy way to inspect it and when you get voids in the underfill it might still be great protection in the event that you drop the product but it's almost guaranteed to fail in thermal cycling because when you have like different sections under an IC that do and do not have underfill, they have different, very different coefficients of thermal expansion. So if you leave your, leave your iPod in a hot car in Houston, Texas in the middle of the summer, mismatched coefficients of thermal expansion means that the IC is going to see some pretty intense stresses as the thing heats up. And I've actually seen it cause chips to 
completely delaminate like as in the layers of silicon start to peel apart so yeah it, it kind of looks like basically it's like a, a, a conformal coating that goes be underneath your bga yeah yeah also it seems like uh, x-ray would be uh some x-ray sampling would be a way to detect that but that's also a giant pain in the ass yeah i mean underfill can be a useful tool but like you have to be really sure that you're applying it well otherwise it can be very very bad news got it all right so glue and underfill you want me to Pretty keep going i've got i can keep i can keep going oh yeah oh yeah no that's just, that's just that's just the first thing <laughs> like antennas how do you guys feel about antennas uh, well, well what, what kind of antenna are we talking oh, about? Oh, good question. Good question. So a chip antenna or like a trace antenna on your main PCB, I have no problem with. That's totally fine. But Yeah, you don't the, have to do anything with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But the moment you try to do antenna on a flex or it's a PCB trace antenna that's separate from your main board and there's like some form of in interconnect, the whole thing becomes super fragile and super dependent on precise assembly because like all of a sudden you'll tighten a screw an extra quarter turn and it can detune your whole antenna oh because yeah it flexes the board right or or you can have some like plastic piece that sits next to the antenna that comes in a little bit thicker than normal still like still in spec per the drawing but maybe it's on one opposite end of the distribution compared to previous samples and that can completely detune your antenna or i, I swear i'm not making this up like you change the color of the ink printed on your glass faceplate and it detunes the antenna <laughs> <laughs> like crazy I ha stuff. I hated electromagnetics in school. I know. I know. Me too. Me too. My least favorite class. Oh, it but was I, awful. I've, like I've worked with some amazing antenna designers over my career, and I've got utmost respect for them. But it really is black magic to me, especially when you're getting into millimeter wave bands. That stuff is insane. But antennas always have a way of making final assembly of a product so much harder than it should be you weren't involved on the iphone that you had to hold correctly right <laughs> for it to make a call i was not i was not that was that was, that was not my project i that, that I, was uh, operator error right that wasn't that apple's was fault, fault right? <laughs> i had no part in in the antenna gate scandal <laughs> you know okay so one one thing one antenna pet peeve that i've i've run into and it's just awful um and and this should have been caught way early on in in design, but um, I had a customer that that wanted an antenna, and it was an external, you know, uh, SMA style connector um, with a pigtail that went through an enclosure, but the pigtail wasn't long enough to uh, to assemble the thing on a bench. You had to like clamshell it part way and connect it to a board, then close everything and screw it together. It was terrible. Oh, service loops. Yeah, service loops are important. Yeah. Uh, I've worked on too many products where you, the first time you make a wire or like a, a flex inter cable interconnect, um, you make it way too short because you forget that you actually have to assemble it. 
like a human's <laughs> hands have to go in there and be able to physically plug it in. So right. then the second iteration has got this crazy S bend and it's super, super long just so that you can get the, get the thing assembled. So yeah. Stephen, I had a, we had a similar issue except that it was the enclosures already had that, that antenna on it. Uh-huh. So I had the pigtail inside the enclosure, right? But you couldn't put the PCB in it because it would interfere with the wire oh. that came out of the, side of the enclosure so you had to remove the antenna put the pcb in and then put the antenna back in <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I worked as a as a repair technician for for years um doing pa systems and mixing boards and keyboards and things like that and you sort of get an appreciation for the assembly when you have to be the guy that takes it apart to fix it and so many times, so many times, you're, you're trying to rip something apart, and there's 18 ribbon cables. That's like, how the hell did they put this together in the first place? Like, it's hard enough to take apart. Nobody, nobody does design for repair. Everybody does d- talks about design for manufacturing and design for, for assembly, but nobody ever talks about design for repair. <laughs> design for poor schmucks. <laughs> what are you talking about we're in a capitalist society it's throw it away steven oh yeah my, my bad yeah <laughs> consumerism society i should say all right any anything else for pet peeves yeah well i i could keep going but the, the list is long <laughs> i've also got i don't know um some of these some of these start to get slightly more specific to manufacturing in Asia and and even more specific to southern China but there's a couple of um tried and true rules that we live by just because uh you know we've been bitten too many times and and one of one of them one of the things we like to always tell rookies before they went over to China for their first time was uh if you care about something don't let it out of your sight. Don't ever let it out of your sight. Hmm. Um, because the the way that, I mean, I get it. Like manufacturing environments are super, super chaotic, but things have a tendency to disappear. So you've got this PCB that hit some sort of bug that your firmware person is like trying to debug and figure out what's going on. And it's the only one that's ever hit this and it's like super, super valuable. And then one of the factory engineers says that they're going to go take it to the FA lab to look at it under a microscope and then they walk away and then you never see that board ever again. Um, so it's, it's just this like repeated thing that happens again and again and again that you find something that's important or, you know, something that really is of high value and then it, uh, has a tendency to disappear. And I, I don't mean, I don't mean things like phones and laptops. I mean, like, boards that desperately are in need of some sort of failure analysis yeah you got to babysit it so i i got a pet peeve go for designs is when you have when you're assembling a a product and the part of the build is soldering the wires onto the board so instead of having a connector there that plugs into the board because I've actually seen some products that you just are actually, hate soldering. That don't you, well, but connectors are connectors take up space. Like they're big. If you're trying to make a, a product as thin as possible, like you can't use board to board Molex connectors. Like that's not gonna, that's not gonna work. <laughs> now, I, I, one of the I've taken some stuff apart and like the antennas would be soldered to. So the only way to take it apart is actually desoldering everything. Yeah, that's. 
that's that's no fun. Like that's no fun. I just I hate um I hate anything that's hand soldered because it's so uh it's so inconsistent. People make mistakes, but I I'm totally fine with um hot bar soldering. Oh, like LCD screens and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, hot bar hot bar soldering is is often done in in high volumes, and it's you know. Uh, as long as you dial in the process, it's then like super consistent moving forward. Actually, now, uh, I, I, I talked to a customer off the ledge today. Um, they wanted to... Off the ledge. Well, they, they wanted to install these connectors that went through the a front plate on a product and then put a PCB onto that and then solder it directly on there. So it is it would be impossible to remove the PCB after soldering. And it's not like one soldering point, it's 16 large soldering points for this. And I was like, if you if you have one RMA, you will regret this. And you will have one RMA. Yeah, because <laughs> what do you do with a failed unit at that point? Because you can't take it apart. It just goes right into the e-waste bin. Yeah, it doesn't get taken apart. And I mean, maybe, uh, so. maybe you can salvage the screws. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. So we're not doing that with that customer. We're doing something else. <laughs> but you are doing it on the macro amp. The macro amp is different because it's, it's one a one-off. One. It's a personal project, <laughs> and I don't. I, I can service the board from one side. So oh, so you can still service the board? Okay. That's I can service the yeah. I, I everything is one side uh, stuff, so I can uh, I can service it all from the side that I can look at. That's not bad. Yep. Well, thank you, Chrissy, for coming on to the podcast. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate it. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun uh, talking about high-volume manufacturing because it's something that, you know, not a lot of people have experience with. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's fun, and it's, it's, definitely, uh, it's definitely something that I'm super passionate about, so I enjoy talking about it. Um, but I also apologize for ranting on all of my manufacturing pet peeves and... I guess glue isn't always terrible. <laughs> well, great. With that, uh, would you like to uh, sign us out? That was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, Chrissy Meyer. And we were your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, or your hatred of glue is just as strong as ours, let Steven and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen as it helps this show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.